I'm Amanda Olberg, Managing Editor of Education Next. We invite you to join this week's Education Next podcast, available online Wednesday morning each week at educationnext.org. For most Americans, the words public education evoke a specific set of institutional arrangements, neighborhood schools funded by the state and managed by locally elected boards. That understanding is so pervasive that many of us have a hard time envisioning anything else. But my guest today argues that contemporary Americans' understanding of public education is far from universal. In many democracies, public education systems operate under arrangements that value pluralism over uniformity, and that these same arrangements were once influential here in the United States. It's time to reconsider, she argues, whether our commitment to uniformity in the provision of public education comports with democratic principles in the first place. I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and I'm joined today by Ashley Berner, deputy director of the Institute for Education Policy and assistant professor of education at Johns Hopkins University. She's also the author of the recent book, Pluralism in American Public Education, No One Way to School, that will be the focus of our conversation today. You can find an article distilling the book's main themes on the Ednext blog at educationnext.org. Ashley, welcome to the Ednext podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be with you. So you've written a fascinating book, one that's heavy on educational philosophy and history, but then ultimately uses them to offer a fresh perspective on some of the most contentious debates in modern education policy. There's a lot to discuss, but Maybe you could start out just by defining what you mean by educational pluralism. Sure. So educational pluralism refers to a system of organizing education in which the government funds and regulates, but does not necessarily operate the schools. And so then who does the operating? So the operating can, can be by the government but it can also be by organizations within civil society. So the membership organizations that make up churches, synagogues, nonprofits, um, and so on. Now, I imagine that a lot of listeners will hear you offer that definition and say, huh, that reminds me a lot of Milton Friedman on education policy. So how, in your view, does a system of educational pluralism differ from the libertarian vision of largely unregulated schools competing to attract families who bear government-funded scholarships or vouchers? Mm -hmm. Sure. So the libertarian view that the market should be the regulator and the quality control mechanism for these schools is is not an educationally plural uh, notion. And by the way, Milton Freeman may not have gone that far himself. In his writings on vouchers, he does talk about some accountability. But pluralism essentially says education is a public good, and therefore the public has a concern over what's taught, how well it's being taught, and how well the funds are being spent. So if you think of it as a spectrum between the individual, civil society, and the state, Educational pluralism overlaps with all three, but ultimately belongs somewhere in the middle. The libertarian might say regulations don't have a part, in fact, will be deleterious upon educational freedom. 
a pluralist view will say, well, not so fast. We need to know, for example, that there are certain academic floors under all the schools or that schools are preparing students appropriately for citizenship and so on. Now, critics of the vision that you lay out will often argue that the government providing funding for religious schools runs counter to the American tradition of separating church and state. But you argue that a pluralist approach is actually more consistent with democratic principles. Why are the critics wrong? And how does pluralism, in your view, sort of reflect the American tradition rather than run against it? Right. So those are essentially two different questions. The first on political philosophy and democratic principles, and the second on the Constitution. So let's take the political philosophy first. The political philosophy asks what the right relationship is between the individual, the state, and civil society, and where does education belong in that framework. So if you're going to argue for uniform delivery, you have to argue that the state is uniquely qualified to prepare children for democratic citizenship. And you have to further argue that the state can provide an education that is neutral with respect for values. So the best argument is, is for uniformity, is that the state is uniquely qualified and can counterbalance whatever commitments Americans have that separate us, whether they're religious or political or philosophical. Now, pluralism, on the other hand, has to argue that education cannot be neutral, that there is, in fact, no element of a school that is neutral with respect to values. So if we omit certain things, if we don't talk, for example, about God, we're still instructing students. The way that we set up our disciplinary systems or our adult relationships is also instructive and so on. So the best argument for a pluralistic structure is that education cannot be neutral with respect to values, and therefore we need a structure that acknowledges this. Um, so so it's, um, I think in terms of what comports with democratic principles, in my view, while there certainly is a case to be made for uniformity, the pluralist argument is stronger. And you're right that I think my initial question did conflate two separate issues, what we just discussed in terms of alignment with democratic principles, but then also the more particular concern about whether the government funding religious schools runs counter to the Establishment Clause of the Constitution. And there, the Supreme Court, at least, has spoken on their interpretation of that question, right? Yeah, so the Supreme Court has made several rulings that the state funding for religious schools doesn't violate the Establishment Clause of the federal Constitution if that funding is channeled through parental choice and if it is the result of a secular and neutral law. So, for example, it would be illegal or unconstitutional for a state to just give a block grant to a Catholic school or to pass legislation that says we're going to support religious education in this state. But the kind of tax credit or, well, voucher laws that assign public funding to parents, to transport to religious schools is perfectly constitutional from a federal perspective. Very different, as you know, at the state level. So I can imagine some listeners saying, okay, I see the benefit of supporting some groups 
in operating schools that reflect their moral or philosophical tradition, but surely their limits. They would say, we don't want the neo-Confederates and Nazis who marched in Charlottesville last month, month to have that benefit, for example. And more recently, concerns have been raised in the context of existing private school choice programs about the extent to which schools can discriminate against uh, certain students. For example, a number of the private schools participating in Indiana school voucher program don't admit students who are gay or transgendered, and that's something critics have pointed to as a concern. How does a system of educational pluralism resolve those kinds of dilemmas? Is it able to? Oh, it's a very, very good question. And pluralism doesn't, in fact, solve all of those problems. It does surface additional problems. I think um, the issue of race and the issue of, say, jihadism or sedition is a little easier to deal with in that we have fairly tight laws that prohibit both. So right now, even a private school that receives no funding from the government is not allowed to discriminate on the basis of race. So I don't, I, I think we are concerned about race and about funding um, groups that are seditious in any way. It's probably it, we're probably too concerned about it. We need to be mindful of it, but there are legal protections in place. When it comes to LGBT students or faculty, it's very different because, as you know, there's no federal protection for, for students and faculty who are not heterosexual. And I think there are several ways to think about this. First, it's possible for legislators and congressmen to pass laws that can protect these, these students and these adults. Um, long term, I think it will end up before the Supreme Court. And one thing I discuss in my book, although it's suggestive merely, is that the concept of categorical psychological harm. Now, categorical psychological harm is what was used conceptually in the Brown versus Board of Education case, in which the, the justices took very seriously the claim that segregated education was damaging psychologically and academically inherently to an entire group of students. And if we had sufficient psychological findings that this was this, there was an analog to heteronormative schooling, then I think we could have a Brown versus Board of Education moment at the Supreme Court on this issue. That's interesting. I mean, one of the things about the Brown versus Board of Education decision is that they made that argument in part because they didn't want to depart altogether from the Plessy v. Ferguson separate is inherently unequal standard without offering a reason for why they were saying education is a unique setting. And that's what pushed them in that direction. Um, of course, they later went on to say that segregation is wrong independent of any empirical consequences. Um, but that was an important step in the court's reasoning, at least on the issue of race. That's right. And, and the Supreme Court has issued additional restrictions based on race for schools, including in higher education. And, and on race, we've reached the point that one constitutional scholar, John Inazu, calls it a super norm. And, and culturally, we're not there yet around 
um, LGBT, although there are certainly signs that generational shift is occurring. One of the interesting things, though, is that this conversation about what schools should be permitted to do has come up specifically in the context of schools receiving public funding. Private schools, whatever their policies uh, with respect to LGBTQ students, um, were operating without any scrutiny before the enactment of these policies. So it's interesting to see how the push towards a more plural education system is exactly what is uh, calling attention to something that was ongoing. Yes, this is, that's a very, very good point. And it's not, it's not easy for those of us who both support pluralism and support LGBT rights um, at this time. So as I've just suggested by referring to Indiana's private school choice program, there are a number of states in America that have taken some steps towards the creation of a system that would be more plural in nature. So they've created charter school laws, they've adopted uh, small private school choice programs, in some cases, relatively large private school choice programs. In discussing barriers to the enactment of those policies and why uh, movement in that direction has been so halting, Analysts tend to emphasize political opposition from organized interests with a stake in the system. So teachers' unions, district officials, homeowners who have bought into exclusive school attendance zones. And your book doesn't downplay those forces, but you argue that the cultural framework through which we understand public education is perhaps even more fundamental. What do you mean by this? So when sociologists talk about culture, they don't mean classical music and art. They're talking about the backdrop to our social experience, things that we don't even notice. And this engages our cultural imagination. So when I ask you how long it takes to get from Boston to Washington, D.C., Marty, you probably think in terms of how long. Uh, Takes me on the American Airlines shuttle about uh, two and a half hours door to door. Right. So at the outset, you would be thinking about driving, in which case it would be, I don't know, 10 hours or something. But you think in terms of planes, trains, and automobiles, your cultural default is not horseback or a covered wagon. And that's because the innovations have, that were once novel have become part of the fixture of our imagination. The same is true with, politi- with politics. We're not, we're not arguing about the monarchy anymore. We assume a democratic culture. We don't notice it. We may have thought about it at one point, but we don't notice it. That's the way it is with our educational system. Even those remarkable achievements of charter school laws and tax credit programs and so on are still arguing within a framework that defaults to the neighborhood school. So if you look at the way our political debates are framed and our research is framed, it's do these schools and do these programs have the right to exist based on their performance over and against the neighborhood district school. Our culture dictates that conversation. And so on the one hand, all of the innovations that are happening in Indiana and Florida and elsewhere actually make it plausible. They make it plausible to have a conversation about educational pluralism as an entirely different default. But they're also still forced to operate within the framework that we have. So if culture is indeed the fundamental barrier, then how does culture change? (laughs) Culture changes very slowly and intentionally. 
Now, here I would refer to the work of James Davison Hunter at the University of Virginia, who's responsible for teaching me and many other people how culture, what it is and how it changes. And to summarize very quickly, culture or a component of culture changes when a group of individuals from different domains, social capital, financial capital, political capital, moral capital, high authority levels in these domains, pull together in the same direction over a long period of time, create a moral urgency around their cause, and create new institutions that challenge the status quo. So that's, that's what's happening with education in this country. We're not through the finish line yet. Ashley Berner is Deputy Director of the Institute for Education Policy at Johns Hopkins University. You can find an article based on her new book, Pluralism in American Public Education, on our website at educationnext.org. Ashley, thanks for being part of the podcast. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the EdNext Podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or another platform so that you don't miss an episode. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners find us.